4: streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First.
3: And welcome to Kidney Talk. We have a very special guest today, Very Lori. special guest. This is somebody who's very close to me. And he gave you the gift of life, or basically
0: placed the gift of life right. in you. and you
3: know what? He's seen parts of my body that I haven't even seen. <laughs> I
0: know. I wonder if you're as nice on the inside as you are on the outside. He said I
3: had very good veins and very good muscle tissue and... Uh, <laughs> He asked me out for a date, actually.
0: <laughs> Isn't it wonderful when people tell you something positive about your body? Because when you're a patient or you have healthcare issues, they always talk of what's wrong with your body.
3: But his was like a left-handed compliment. He says, boy, when I opened you up and I saw the veins in your growing, he says, they were very healthy veins for being a diabetic for so long. Yeah. I said, well, thank you. And I said, now you can kiss me.
0: <laughs> well, we're going to be talking to your surgeon. transplant surgeon, right. Dr. Woodle, Dr. Stephen Woodle. I mean, oh, it sounds like him, a game, Woodle. Well, I, I call
3: him Noodle Woodle. Noodle Woodle? Yeah. Oh, okay. and what's fascinating about him, not only is he a top-notch surgeon in the country, and, you know, he's written books, and he teaches seminars, and, you know, every time I call his office, oh, he's in Hong Kong this week, Steve, or he's in India, you know, giving a seminar, but he is a transplant recipient of a liver now wow. that's, you know, so he can really identify. He can
0: identify what you patients. went through. And it's neat to have a doctor's name that you can pronounce, Woodle. Because right. nowadays there's so many difficult names to pronounce. You're like, am I going to be able to say it the right way? You right,
3: know? right. I, I remember the, the first doctor I, I met after the surgery was Moglia Shetty. And I went, <laughs> excuse me, I think I had a dessert that was that name one time. When we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Steve Woodle the Noodle. Mm-hmm.
4: Hi, my name is Jenny Huey. There is a critical shortage of organs. 91,000 people are waiting for a transplant. I am one of those people waiting for a kidney like many of you listening. I wait for my transplant coordinator to call me with the good news, that they have a kidney for me. Other young women my age are waiting for that special someone who they met online at that dating website, Match.com, to call, and I'm waiting for the right cross match. It is important that we all inform our friends, family, and co-workers about the importance of becoming a donor and to make sure they sign a donor card. Also, they need to discuss this very important decision with their family. We all need to bring awareness to the public about the importance of giving the gift of life so I can continue on with my life, dialysis-free, and have guys waiting patiently by the phone for me.
3: Dr. Steve Woodle, welcome to kidney talk how are you today
2: doing well now Hi. did you
3: do I know today's Thursday so did you do a surgery today
2: we actually didn't do one today um, but we've got one on Tuesday and next Thursday
3: oh I because I know Thursdays you're like your favorite day to do surgery
2: yeah well unfortunately this one wasn't quite ready for this week you know it's always a disappointing day when when we can't do a transplant
3: right right now why do you choose Thursdays
2: it's just how the surgery scheduling works out uh, here at University Hospital. Um, the other reason is it's been that way for probably about twenty years, and um, uh, nobody's wanted to change it so
3: so it has nothing to do with the in Cincinnati where the bars close at two o'clock, right. <laughs>
2: no it has nothing to do with that
3: <laughs> oh okay now now where where are you a doctor i said cincinnati but what hospital are you at
2: our surgery group our transplant group is is at the university and we actually do all of the transplants at both university hospital And also at the Christ Hospital.
0: Well, I have to tell you, Dr. Woodle, I am so privileged to meet you because uh, Stephen looks absolutely fantastic. And yes, and thank you so much because uh, you're a miracle worker.
2: Well, we've got a really good team here in Cincinnati.
0: Yeah, a fantastic team. I I, I love
3: them. everywhere from pre-op, where we talk to the transplant coordinator for pre-surgery, To, you know, the the hospital staff on the sixth floor to uh, the post-surgery transplant coordinators.
0: Steven just can't uh, say enough about the hospital and the care that he received. And I'm always comparing UC to uh, UCLA, (laughs)
3: you know, because they're both, you know, great reputations, but there's such a, a huge difference between the two hospitals as a patient. I'm talking now as a patient.
2: I've always had a, a lot of respect for the UCLA program there. You know, they're like Cincinnati in a lot of ways. I mean, they're mature programs. They've been around for a long time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the physicians there, Dr. Danovich and Alan Wilkinson, uh, they're they're great docs. Yes.
0: So I was transplanted by uh, Danovich and Wilkinson, and it'll be almost 18 years in April. So I have no complaints. Well, you know, one thing I'm fascinated by is that you've had a liver transplant. And, you know, as a patient who received a kidney transplant... I mean it's it's pretty fascinating that my physician would know what I went through. So can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: Uh I actually was exposed to hepatitis sometime during my my training as a surgeon, which is one of the occupational hazards that surgeons have and uh developed uh, cancer as a result of that uh in 1999 in July I had a liver resection for that, I had uh, two thirds of my liver removed for that. Back then it did real well for 4 years. Until it came back here, it came back and I had a couple of operations for that and then underwent a liver transplant on October the 13th in 2003.
0: Well, it's like the movie The Doctor.
2: (laughs) You know, um, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, you're going through things that your patients went through and you get a a deeper appreciation for uh, what they deal with.
3: So you can relate the way the patients feel and everything.
2: Beforehand... You know, patients would be sitting in a waiting room and they'd get their creatinines drawn and they would literally be on pins and needles, you know, until they find out the Mm -hmm. results. Or if they were like me, they would need a CT scan. And if cancer came back, you know, I mean, it would be devastating. And I never you, you can try to imagine what that's like, but until you actually go through it, you really don't know.
0: Oh, I focus so much on my creatinine. It's incredible. I mean, that one little number can make my day or absolutely destroy my day. Just waiting for the results, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my creatinine came back, and it was 2.8. It ended up being a lab error. Um, We had to recheck it, and I had to wait. But, I mean, I was just freaking out. I mean...
2: Yeah, for like 24 to 48 hours to get that lab value back. I mean, it just drives you crazy.
0: So when you were
3: told that you had... developed cancer. I know what it was like when I was told, well, you're going to have to go on dialysis. You have kidney disease. What was that immediate feeling when you were told that you had cancer?
2: Well, I was actually still coming out from under anesthesia. And um, once it started to seek in, it was nothing but sheer panic. Takes you a while to, I think, to get your thoughts and emotions under control. Although I was making decisions about what I needed to do medically, and I knew where we needed to go, I think it took me uh, a couple of days or so to really calm down to the point to where I felt more in control of, of my emotions and what I needed to do
3: and i guess the prednisone didn't help <laughs>
2: Well, you know, I didn't have, well, when I first found out I had cancer, of course, I wasn't on any prednisone. You know, after my transplant, you know, for the first few days, I was on pretty high doses, you know, as usual as all patients are. And it really had my motor going.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that probably impacted the staff is that once you needed a transplant, it probably really hit home. Like, wow, this can happen to us. And it probably was an incredible education process for your team.
2: Well, I was pretty lucky because I did have the transplant done here in Cincinnati. Did you know the doctors? No, that was a big decision as to whether or not to have, and psychologically and emotionally, I'm sure it was difficult for them. One of the big things for me was whether or not to impose that on them because that's a huge load and a lot of pressure. And, uh, you know, when I started talking to them about it, they actually were relieved and they actually wanted me to stay here. They actually Mm -hmm. wanted me, they wanted that pressure Mm -hmm. and wanted to do that. And I was... That helped a lot. So
0: you prescribe immunosuppressant drugs to patients. Now you're having to take them. That's one of the things that people don't quite understand. Once you start taking immunosuppressant drugs, especially steroids, the impact that they have. Um, did you have any side effects?
2: Yeah, I still deal with side effects. I mean, I have some pair of, you know, some tingling, like, in my hands and feet with the uh, ProGraph.
3: Well, that's not good for a surgeon to have tingling in your hands.
2: It's a nuisance. Is
3: that why my scar is so sloppy? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, uh um, we'll we'll blame that on something else. Oh, okay.
3: That's, the, that's because the bars didn't close.
2: I would actually think that your scar was not sloppy, though. I would actually think that it was actually a very beautiful scar.
3: It was. A, you know, if scars can be beautiful, uh, mine mine is beautiful.
2: <laughs> One of the things that I sort of spent my career doing, I've actually spent 15 years of my academic career is trying to show scientifically that you can do transplants safely without the steroids. You know, um, I think as a result of that work, you know, our center and actually some other centers... Have done a fair amount of work, too. You know, now in the United States, most of the patients that get kidney transplants don't get steroids past the first week or so. And of the patients that do get steroids, they get much less than what they used to. And so what's happened is that, you know, the side effects of the steroids have been close to being eliminated. And, uh, you know, we're very proud of that and very happy for the patients because that's the reason we did it was... For the patient's lives.
3: Okay. Now, I read somewhere recently, Dr. Woodle, that um, I think it's in Michigan where it's an experimental program where they're giving no immunosuppressants whatsoever.
2: Yeah, well, that's actually a program that's out that's been at, at one of the Harvard uh, hospitals for some time. It's actually a program where patients get a lot of radiation and also um, almost chemotherapy-like agents early. Uh, They initially start off on some immunosuppression, but then after time, they come off of it. They're slowly weaned off of it, and then they can stay off of it. Those are are very experimental approaches. Uh, It's been, you know, they just reported the first five patients, and they're gonna do, my understanding is they're probably gonna do another 10 or 12 patients over the next few years, but uh, that's really sort of really far out on the uh, horizon you know, what's more realizable in the relative short term is that, you know, newer medications are going to come out, and as new medications come out, we're able to to use them better and minimize side effects.
0: I know there's a lot of advancements working on chronic renal failure because the slow progression, it's hard to stop, and that really is encouraging for somebody who has a transplant for almost 18 years.
2: People are actively working on that in a lot of places around the world, and uh, you know, including our group here in, in Cincinnati. And uh, So some, there's a few new exciting things on the horizon in that area. I think reason to give us more excitement than what we've had in a long time.
3: So, uh, Dr. Woodle, when we come back, we're going to find out more about the immunosuppressant drugs and uh, how I was as a patient, and uh, to find out the other new thing that I read about where you can substitute immunosuppressants with cappuccinos. So uh, when we come back, we'll, we'll talk about all that stuff.
1: Driving a cab in a Big Apple could really get on your nerves. With all the traffic, the noises, the rude drivers. Oh, watch where you're going, wise guy. Get some glasses. Oh, where was I? Oh, yeah, the rude drivers. There's one thing I wish was a little louder or not so quiet. Secondary hyperparathyroidism. I know it's a big word, but you know what? It's a big problem. It's often referred to as a silent disease. I didn't even know what I had until I experienced weakness, achy bones, itchy skin, and sexual dysfunction. But you didn't hear that last one from me. Some people call it the bone disease because of the loss of too much phosphorus and calcium. But what you don't know, Mr. Smarty Pants, is that it also affects soft tissue like the heart, the lungs, the blood vessels, bada bing, bada boom, and that's about everything. So don't be a wise guy. Wise up and talk to your doctor about the big boy. Secondary hyperparathyroidism. Whoa, for crying out loud, do me a favor, Grandma. Get off the road and throw away your keys.
0: I want to know, what was Stephen like as a patient?
2: Steve was a great patient.
0: Did he have to pay you to say that?
2: No, no. Absolutely <laughs> I, I no. did I, mean, I did
0: demand
3: special treatment, and I, I did the whole Hollywood thing, though.
2: No, he didn't do any of that. I mean, um, Stephen was like a lot of diabetics that, that we have. I mean, when diabetics are used to dealing with their blood sugars every hour or so of every day, you know, taking medicines twice a day and doing the, the few things they, they have to do is not a big burden on them. In fact... You know, when they get off dialysis, they feel so much better that they're they're usually a very happy lot. Uh, I think that, you know, they're very grateful. You know, one of the great things about the field we're in is that our patients are just, we get so much back from our patients, you know.
3: I think that's really because of the program there, Dr. Woodle. Uh, Everywhere from the dialysis unit in the hospital to the doctors who take care of you post-transplant to the surgeons who take care of you during the thing, it was just such excellence and, and I'm comparing you to UCLA, which has a tremendous reputation. And I think people want to give back and, and be good to the doctors there.
0: Well, in Los Angeles, we have so many patients that need a transplant. It's just enormous, the, the need out here.
2: You know, the number of patients that need transplants there in California, their list, the size of the transplant list in Northern and Southern California, they're just huge. You know, it's a state with 47 million people. I mean, there's gonna be a lot of patients. For me, having been through this experience and everything, I think it's all about the patient.
3: So what was that thing when you told me that you needed to check my credit rating before you did the surgery?
2: (laughs) That may have been in the business office.
0: How did you decide to be a transplant surgeon?
2: I made the decision to be a surgeon in my third year of medical school and then in my second year of residency I had an opportunity to do some transplant related research I got bitten by the bug and that was back in 1982.
0: Well, my first transplant I had in 79, and it, it didn't work, unfortunately, but I was on high doses of steroids and Imuran, and I probably would have eaten a leather shoe if you would have put it in front of me. I was so hungry. And then in 83, I got a second transplant, and it worked. And it was just, you know, cyclosporine had just come on the market, which was a huge advancement. And unfortunately, I got CMV. Before the antiviral medication. That one didn't work. And so it was amazing that I was even able to get a third transplant because I had like over 90% antibodies. I was lucky to get a, you know, a six antigen match. And I've seen the progression and the progress that has been made in transplantation. And it just gives patients so much hope.
3: And it was pretty amazing because she bought that kidney on the internet, the third one. I did, on eBay. A guy from (laughs) India. Did you hear about the guy and they were stealing, the doctors stole 500 kidneys from people?
2: We hear I mean, a lot of stories out of third world countries, particularly uh, India and, and some of the things that have happened in China. The transplantation societies, people in the public don't know this, but the transplantation societies, uh, which are the societies of the physicians and professionals that, that do transplants, are actually actively working with the World Health Organization to try to get a handle on these organs for profit and, and, and wipe this stuff out. And I know from announcements from the World Health Organization and the Transplant Societies that China is making some very solid steps forward. They're not there yet. Uh, the biggest actually it looks like the biggest threats right now are over in India.
3: Mm. Right. That's where this guy was arrested. They were calling people in for job interviews and drugging them and taking their kidneys and Mm. leaving them out back on the street.
2: You know, it's pretty scary. And, you know, to me, that's an abomination. That's just the grossest of human rights violations that I can dream of. and What
3: advice would you give to somebody considering a transplant? Because I know people on dialysis who said, you know, I don't want to even bother with a transplant. I'm used to dialysis. It's working for me. I don't want a transplant.
2: The thing that's really important for them to realize is that if they want to live as normal a life and if they want to live a long life, the only option is transplantation. The survival, the average survival on dialysis is about seven years. The survival with transplants uh, can be uh, much longer than that. For example, Stephen, you know you had diabetes. The death rates on dialysis for a diabetic are about 20 to 25% per year, each year.
3: Yeah, it goes up right now.
2: And now your risk of dying each year is probably 2% or less right now that you have a functioning transplant. And those are the, some of the facts that I think people don't understand how remarkable the improvements are in life expectancy with transplant compared to dialysis
0: and and that's pretty good odds (laughs) considering my hobby is bungee jumping (laughs) well there's just simply not enough organs though do you think we'll ever go to an opting out system like some of the european countries as opposed to an opting in
2: that's a that's a real that's a big cultural and ethical issue um and i think the answer is is that and one of the things transplant programs have been doing is, is they've been encouraging living donor transplantation. There are a substantial proportion of patients who are on dialysis now who may have people that would be willing to give them a kidney, but they don't understand that. They haven't received the proper education. And uh, so uh, that's a really big option. Plus, some of the things that used to keep a donor for be able to donate, like not having the right blood type, mm-hmm. we now have options so that people can get around that.
3: I know a big myth was, oh, I got to have six out of six match, you know, and I know that uh, that's not the case, really.
0: So, Stephen, tell us a little bit about your donor.
3: Oh, I, I know very little about my donor. You know I, very little, huh? I know his first name and his age. That's all I know. Wow. And
2: altruistic mm-hmm. donors is pretty rare, isn't it, Dr. Woodle? Well, Stephen had sort of a, an unusual situation. It was not quite a true altruistic donor, but it was a directed donation from someone who knew of Steve's problem. You know it was an individual who had actually this individual's uh, mother had actually received a transplant, and he was one of the donors but during the evaluation, he found they found they had the wrong blood type and then like his sister was able to donate because she had the right blood type. Well when he found out well, he was he couldn't donate to his mother, he was very disappointed he said, "You know." I really wouldn't like to give, you know, a kidney to somebody else if they need it. And he had found out about Steven's plight problems, and he came forward and said, you know, look, I know about him, I've read about him, you know, I want to give to somebody and I'd like to give to him. So, you know, we of course went through our ethics committees, and psychologists and psychiatrists and everything. and. This turned out to be a good match for Steven, and he was seemed to be very aware of what he wanted to do, and um, he's now doing doing very well. He's pleased that Steven has done so well, and uh, this has worked out really well.
3: Yeah, and, and I know the hospital did special care, so we wouldn't meet. I mean, we were on separate floors and everything, So, uh, but I did talk to him on the phone before the surgery, and uh, he was very nice, and I thanked him profusely, and you know, he's changed my life. It took about, I would say, almost close to four months to start feeling better. And the thing about having a transplant, though, Dr. Woodle, is it did not eliminate the damage I had done to my body by being an out of control diabetic for so many years. It didn't bring back. My neuropathy, you know, it didn't cure that and it didn't cure, you know, the uh, numbness in my hands, you know, stuff like that. So I still don't feel like a, a, a regular person, but it's head and shoulders over having to be on dialysis and being a diabetic also.
2: Yeah, and you don't have to be hooked to a machine three or four hours a day. Correct.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, even though I was doing it at home and around my schedule, it was still an inconvenience. And I remember saying when I was on dialysis at home, I'd say, gosh, I wonder if I'll be able to fill up this time four hours a night. What am I going to do for four <laughs> hours a night? Now I find I, I don't have enough time to do everything
0: I want to do. He, he would call me and tell me all the TV shows he was watching and I, say, I, oh, this is a great new reality show, Laura. You got to check it out. I was, I was watching watching getting television. worried about him. I was watching
3: television shows I would never in a million years sit down and watch, you know, like uh, The Bachelor and and, you know, uh, uh, Hollywood makeovers. And I knew all about Britney Spears and which underwear or underwear she wasn't wearing.
0: Well, one of the things that the Renal Support Network is doing, and um, I'm very excited about it, is that uh, the bill, the transplant immunosuppressant drug bill, was introduced in the House and Senate, and that's very exciting for people who because they pay for your transplant meds up to 3 years for a kidney transplant but if you can't afford them you know you go back on dialysis which the government will pay for
2: and it just Usually what we say is is that look if you can't afford them come to us and we're going to figure a way to help you out. I know of very few patients that have gotten into trouble because they couldn't afford their medicines. But what it does is does create an undue financial burden after three years on some patient. And so that's why that bill is so important. It's actually a disincentive to some patients in terms of going ahead with a transplant. And Congress needs to remove that disincentive. We know that, for example, the burden on the healthcare system is reduced by greater than 50% when you get a transplant. It's right. much more costly to dialyze a patient than it is to take care of them after a transplant.
3: And I wonder why they just don't understand that.
2: Politics is a funny thing. and um,
3: <laughs> They don't want to pay for it.
2: <laughs> well, they worry about, you know, uh, impacts on the budget and all this sort of thing. But I do think, you know, this is one thing where there's been good cost yes uh, cost-effectiveness studies, and it's clearly a cost-effective measure.
0: Whenever I've met with congressmen and and spoke to them about this bill, um, it pretty much is a no-brainer. They do agree that this is what needs to happen. And a perfect example is, you know, every year we throw a prom for teenagers with kidney disease. And um, I had a girl over who, because we actually have a dress shop that we would set up, and she came over and she was 19, had a transplant, and she was getting ready to hit her three-year mark. Of course, we all know that she's not you know, skilled enough to afford her illness and doesn't have access to health care because of Medicare is going to run out. But the sad thing was, is she was sitting there telling me how disabled she was because she needed to keep her benefits and she wasn't disabled. She had a transplant and I, I, it just made me so sad that she was trying to figure out how to keep her health benefits by you know, telling me how how many problems she had, and it was just really a way for her to get access to her meds. And so, what, said, what did she
3: think that you had an end to the government or something? Well,
0: no, it wasn't that. It was just that she was trying to tell me how disabled she was because she could never go to work. Because I was saying, hey, you know, are you going to get a job? Are you going to school? Trying to talk about her future, mm-hmm. and she was in this mindset of like, no, I can never do that. I got to be disabled so I can get my health care and it was extremely sad. And, you know, I'm sure that uh, if she is disabled and and can prove that, she will get her meds, but she won't have a life. And that's really frustrating.
2: When you look at patients, one of the things you really want to see transplant do is completely rehabilitate a patient physically, psychologically, uh, emotionally, but also with respect to, you know, uh, their jobs. Right. Some of the Disability programs and and uh, conditions for Medicare and stuff like that are actually a disincentive to patients mm-hmm. going back to work, which you know from the outside we sort of as a, as a transplant physician i've always believed you know that that um, my patients are better off when they're able to go back to work. I think they have a greater sense of fulfillment their their perceived quality of life is better, and so those are problems in our healthcare system that we need to look at.
3: Now, when you go and see a movie or you watch a television show and they're talking, the subject matter happens to be kidney disease or transplants, do you cringe when you hear mistakes about it and misleading things to the public?
2: Oh, you know, it's hard to watch any medical show. I mean, there's been very few of them that have been real enough to, to be tolerable.
0: Grey's Anatomy is not real?
3: Yeah, all the doctors are having their <laughs> affairs.
2: I think it's one of the better medical shows on television. But
0: that's like a soap opera. They're just having affairs
3: with each other. They're not in doing any surgeries. Well, well, say hi to everybody for me. And my only bad thing to me that happened in Cincinnati is I, I went to a Reds game when they were playing the Dodgers and the Dodgers lost. So that was the only bad thing in Cincinnati. <laughs>
2: Well, you know, those things will happen from from time to time. But go back the next day. The Dodgers will probably win.
3: Right. That's true. All righty. Thank you so thank much you. for joining us and giving us Thanks your
2: time. Thanks for having me
1: on. What's the secret ingredient for delicious yet healthier meals? Why, Mrs. Dad seasoning blends, of course. The 12 varieties of Mrs. Dash are all made up with a unique blend of 14 natural herbs and spices to make side dishes snap, potato pop, and dinner dates unbelievable. And since Mrs. Dash has always been salt-free with no MSG, you can create great tasting meals full of only one thing, mouth-watering flavor. Here's an easy-to-make, healthy recipe idea. Coat some boneless chicken breast in a mixture of Parmesan cheese, breadcrumbs, and Mrs. Dash original blend. Sauté in extra virgin olive oil until done. Then give a small squeeze of fresh lemon juice and serve over your favorite pasta. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that sound good? Well, for more information, visit Mrs. Dash.com. Mrs. Dash, salt-free, flavorful.
3: I love those guys. I love that hospital. And I feel great because they did such a great job. A little sloppy on the stitches, though. I I tried to bring that up, you know. I said, what is my scar going to look like? He says, it's going to kind of look like a hockey stick. You know, so and did it, it look like a hockey stick? It looked like every sport. It looked like a basketball, a hockey stick, tennis, you know.
0: You visit a lot of doctors. Was it different having Dr. Woodle as your physician because you felt like he just understood what you were going through? Do you feel like you could confide in him about things that you knew that somebody who had gone what you went through? When I would
3: ask th- them, is this going to hurt? That's my my right. first question <laughs> is they never say Yes. They, they right. just will never say yes. And they would always say, well, it's uncomfortable. And I knew as soon as they said the word uncomfortable, it was going to hurt. hurt. <laughs> but Dr. Woodle said, yeah, that's going to hurt like hell, you know, right. especially when they take the stint out,
0: you know. Yeah, that's no fun, is no, it? No,
3: it's horrible. I mean, let's not even talk about it. But no, they were great. Love the hospital. And uh, I can't say enough about them. And I'm here today because of Dr. Woodle the Noodle Boodle. How many more names can you rhyme with that? Say say five things that rhyme with
0: Woodle very fast. Go. Noodle, One. doodle, kitten, caboodle, poodle, woodle. toodle, boodle, rudle. strudel, strudel, strudel. Our engineer said strudel.
3: <laughs> He's eating some right now. Well, That's it for kidney Talk. I'm hungry. I'm going to get some of his strudel noodles. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask
2: questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps toward self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look
3: forward to tomorrow.
0: We can help and support our fellow patients.
3: We can pursue our hopes and dreams.
0: We can make a difference. Renal Support Network would like to thank everyone who has made this show possible. Kidney Talk's
3: founding sponsor is Amgen.
0: Generous support is provided by Roche Pharmaceuticals and Estellus.
3: Friends of Kidney Talk are Abbott Laboratories, American Region, and Fresenius Medical Care, North America.
0: Thank you for helping us stream health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community.
3: Visit rsnhope.org for more information.
1: The opinions, recommendations, statements, and advice contained on Kenny Talk are for information only. You should not use the information on the show to diagnose or treat a health problem or disease without first consulting with a qualified health care provider. Please consult with your health care provider about any questions or concerns you may have regarding your condition or dietary regimen.